Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, philosophical, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. We're continuing a series of talks on the Old Testament books of Kings. In this talk, we'll see how Solomon got his reputation for wisdom and the pitfalls he'd need to avoid. Let's get started. We are in 1 Kings, and we'll we'll be beginning today in chapter 3. We're going to be covering a lot because we're going to be looking today at two major times in Solomon's reign as king in which God came and brought a very clear and specific word to Solomon. There was a third time that he did it that we'll get to later. But these two times that we're going to be looking at today are are crucial in understanding not just the reign of Solomon, but everything that follows in 1 and 2 Kings. So much comes out of what we're going to be seeing today in the flow of what's going on. Now remember, when we're looking at First and Second Kings, we're not just looking at dry history. We are looking at the continuing story of what God is doing, how God is coming in love to this world to fulfill His covenant promise that He made all the way back before, just immediately before expelling Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, the promise that He made to Eve that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. And the promise, the covenant promise that God made to Noah, and the covenant promise that God made to Abraham, that through you and your seed, all the nations of the world should be blessed. And then the covenant promise that God made to David, and most directly, the events that take place in the book of Kings are reflective of the fulfilling, God's fulfilling the promise that he made to David and also fulfilling the promise that he made to Israel and the covenant that he made with Israel, the covenant of the law and the blessings and the curses that were brought forward in the covenant, particularly in Deuteronomy. And the writer of Kings is conscious of that whole covenant and that whole series and conscious that what he is doing is he is writing the story, the continuing story of what has taken place in the covenant. And he is demonstrating that though the people of God have been unfaithful, God has remained faithful. And in spite of the fact that what you see now, which is at the end of the book of Kings, captivity and the destruction of everything that they thought was eternal. In spite of that, God has remained faithful. And because He has remained faithful, and taking it just to this part of the, of the telling of the story, it gives hope to those who are in captivity and those who are in exile that as unfaithful as we have been, God has so remained faithful 
that there is hope for the fulfillment of prophecy for the future. There is. <laughs> we, we are hearing confirmation even now. <clears throat> Moreover, we see, the, we, the, we see the sweep in the books of Kings, not only the connection with the past, but we also can connect that with the future because there is a promise that is yet to be fulfilled. That you get all the way to the end of the Old Testament and, and the, the last words of the Old Testament, it's kind of like an unresolved chord in a, to end a symphony. You think, there's got to be more to this. And there is. And that is the coming of Christ. And throughout all of this, there is a spiritual warfare going on behind all of the wars and the conflicts and the political maneuverings. There is a war going on and maneuverings, not just between good men and evil men, but between the, uh, the forces of light, the forces of God, and the forces of the wicked one who rules the kingdoms of the earth, who controls and manipulates and directs the powers of the world. And so we see that, that greater war going on, and we saw that somewhat last week. We saw the one who was promised, the one through whom the promise would come, is getting ready to ascend to the throne but he does not do so without being contested. Well, there are politics involved, and there's some pretty ruthless politics involved, and we may, you know, we may actually worry about that. There is, um, was promised, the one through whom the promise would come is getting ready to ascend to the throne, but he does not do so without being contested. Well, there are politics involved, and there's some pretty ruthless politics involved, and we may you know, we may actually worry about that. There is, um, he was broadcasting in Sacramento. He was called upon to write a newspaper article, and Rush is not a writer, he's a talker. And so he strung together a bunch of disconnected thoughts, which he put under the, the heading of, I forget how many, undeniable truths of life. And some of them are frivolous, some of them are humorous, some of them are satirical. And some of them are very serious and very insightful, very much like his radio program. Some, you know, sometimes frivolous, sometimes satirical, sometimes insightful. And this one was particularly insightful. The statement is this. We live in a world that is governed by the aggressive use of force. Now, idealists would like to think that that's not the case. Idealists would like to think, no, 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 no. We live in a, in a world that's governed by reasonable people of re No, no, we live in a world and that's governed by, you know, we, we should. And, and there are a lot of people who put the should in there as the is. We should live in a world that is peaceful. We should live in a world in which all the swords have been beaten into plowshares and all the spears into pruning hooks. And one day we will. But until then, we do live in a world that is governed by the aggressive use of force. Solomon became the king. 
But he did not become the king peacefully, even though his name means man of peace. He did not, like his father, have to fight wars in order to secure the borders of his country. He did not have to fight a war in order to become the king, as his father did. But he did have to fight for his throne because his own brother was ready to do away with him in order to take the throne for himself. And so, he did. He moved shrewdly. He moved ruthlessly. Because his own brother was ready to do away with him in order to take the throne for himself. And so, he did. He moved shrewdly. He moved ruthlessly. Okay? So Solomon has the right and the authority to pass judgment and then execute that judgment. And that's what he does. And he does so with rapidity. He does so following the counsel of his father. He does so, he follows through on what he needs to do, and he gets his throne secure. And in the process, he shows that he, as a, as a young man of about 20 years, even though he is young, he is not stupid. He is not naive. He is not someone who is just glittery-eyed and all. He understands where he is. He understands what he's come into. He already shows that he has a natural intelligence and and an insight that he has been trained into by his father who actually has done something with him that he did not do with his other sons and that is actually train him to become the leader of his people. So, chapter 3. Solomon, after the king is fir- kingdom is firmly established in his hands, he makes an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. There is, you, you understand the situation of the land of Canaan, also known as the land of Palestine, named for the Philistines, whom David conquered, finally. The land of Palestine, it is... The bridge area, bounded on one side by the Mediterranean Sea, bounded on the other side by the Arabian Desert. And it is a bridge, a land bridge between Africa, Asia Minor, and Mesopotamia. Hugely strategic, important area throughout the history of the ancient world and remains so to this day. And consequently, a bone over which the great powers fought like dogs. And in the ancient times, the great powers were Egypt and the empire of the Hittites in the north. (coughs) Then way to the east, the Babylonians, the ancient Babylonians, the early kingdom in Mesopotamia. And so those are the kingdoms that have 
always been arguing and fighting over all of this area, but right now, the Hittite Empire has been in decline and is almost gone. The empires in the east are, the kingdoms in the east in Mesopotamia are either weak or fighting with each other. Egypt is the only power which needs, which a king in this area needs to be concerned with. And Solomon decides rather than be against them, I'm going to make an ally of them. And does something that we would look at and we would think, really? Is this obedient to the covenant? But it's something that Solomon does. He makes a political marriage, literally. He marries the daughter of Pharaoh. Now, this is important and it is noted not because the daughter of Pharaoh becomes the queen of Israel, but because it is noted because this becomes the pivot point for Solomon's peaceful reign. The only kingdom that he really has to be concerned with that has any power is that one to the south. And if he can make an ally and a trade partner with them, we're good. So he makes this arrangement. And this marriage is not so much a marriage of... It's definitely not a marriage of love. It's a marriage of political alliance. Solomon makes an alliance with Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and married his daughter, brought her to the city of David. The city of David, it's not just a synonym for Jerusalem. It's a synonym for the citadel that David built in the city of, uh, for the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not a huge city, by the way. It's not, a, it's not a sprawling city. And its total population is somewhere around 5,000. And they're packed in pretty tight. And it's enclosed by a wall. And it's pretty, so the city of David is this, is this citadel. And, and David has enclosed Zion, the hill of Zion, inside the city of David. And that's where he has set up the Ark of the Covenant. Under a, uh, under a tabernacle. Again, a temporary shelter. But in Zion. So he brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. <clears throat> the people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because the temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifice and burn incense at the high places. This becomes an issue that is going to come up again and again throughout the book of Kings. It becomes an issue. Moses had prophesied back in Deuteronomy, I believe Deuteronomy chapter 12, that there would come a time that the Lord would establish a single place of worship in Israel. Until then, the, everything would be centered around the tabernacle. But sometime during the period of the judges, things got separated in the tabernacle. And then when in that disastrous uh, uh, battle where uh, they sent the Ark of the Covenant in to lead the armies in the battle and, and the Philistines not only defeated the Israelites but they captured the Ark. And then you've got a separation of the Ark from the altar. 
And that separation endured even through the days of David. When David brought the ark into Jerusalem, the altar was still somewhere else. I believe it was in the town of Gibeon. Uh, and so it was, there was a separation between the altar and the ark, and there is not a single place where the Israelites can go and offer sacrifices. And so they were making provisional places of worship where they would come and offer their sacrifices and there give their worship to God. Now you, understand, you have to understand, the worship of God under the Old Covenant is not just a matter of what we do, a gathering together, singing hymns, praying prayers, studying the Word, hearing the Word, making prayers of commitment to the Lord. That's how we worship God. We, that's how we come together and worship God. That's not what we're talking about there. Under the Old Covenant, the sacrifices had to be made. And there's only, you know, there are certain ways and only certain people who are permitted to do that. And it's significant in the law that there is, but, there is to be but one altar. Why? Because there's just one God. There's to be one altar. And it's not to be done just every way that you think that ought to be done. God has a way. It needs to be done. In other words, there is one way of salvation. God's way. But until this time, the, the sacrifices had to be made, but there wasn't a single place to do it. So high places were done. This is the one thing, and, the, and this is a summary statement about Solomon. In his early years particularly, but he walked according to the ways of the Lord. He walked according to his commandments. He did the, his best to do what God had said to do. He did his best to obey the commandments of the Lord and the things that he had been taught by his father. And so, he did offer sacrifices to the high places. Yeah. Do we know God's opinion of that marriage with you know, there are a lot of things that the writer of Kings does not tell us in terms, of, in terms of making judgments. This is one of those things in which the writer of Kings does not give us a judgment on. As a matter of fact, there are fairly few things at which the writer of Kings makes a judgment. He lets us to deduce certain things from consequences, from and in this case, this, is kind of, this turns out to be kind of a mixed bag. And we're going to see that. He leaves that. He leaves us hanging for that. Because the writer of Kings, a prophet, an unnamed prophet, wants us to understand. He wants us to learn how to discern the ways of the Lord. So he doesn't tell us every answer. He doesn't give us a judgment on everything. I'm glad you brought that up because I needed to bring that up. Yes. But he, but he hits farther on that. It's those wives that have to have a place to worship their yeah, gods. We'll, we'll, yeah, we're going to get to that place. This, this becomes, he, right now he just says, this is what happened. And there's no condemnation of it. But also there's not a word of approval of it. This is, this is just what they did. He's working on the wisdom that he has. And the king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices. That was the most important high place. And Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. 
Now right there, there's an, there's a ta there's an implied approval of what Solomon's been doing up to this point. Certainly there is no criticism or condemnation of anything that Solomon has done. God is pleased. Would you agree? The implication is that Solomon, what you've done up to this point, you're doing fine. Matter of fact, I've got a gift for you. What do you want? Ask me for whatever you want. Now that is tantalizing. Have you ever come to a point in your life where you have resolved and dissolved into one thing what you want from God? <coughs> David, when he, did, when he came to that question, when he came to that, that, when that was put to him, he resolved it down to this in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord, this shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. <coughs> David, when he, did, when he came to that question, when he came to that, that, when that was put to him, he resolved it down to this in Psalm 27. One thing have I asked of the Lord, this shall I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Heart, and you've continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne to this very day. Now, O Lord, my God, you've made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child. I don't know how to carry out my duties. Now, some have taken that statement and said, well, Solomon was just a little boy. No, no, Solomon was a young man. He was about 20, 21 years old. He wasn't a little child, literally, but in terms of the job that he has to do, he was a little child. He had no experience. He had, he had education. I think you all have all figured out, most of the folks in this class have figured out that education is not necessarily the same thing as preparation. I'm a little child. I don't know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great number, too, a great people too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon has been meditating on the law. And Solomon has been meditating on the course of the children of Israel in the wilderness and their stubbornness and their rebelliousness, and yet their amazing ability Sometimes to do it right. And he's seen Moses. You know, God didn't put this on Moses until Moses was greatly advanced in age and, and much experience and much. Yeah, and, and even Moses found himself <laughs> flustered. Dave, Solomon looks back over the career of his, of his father and thinks, I'm not my father. My father paid his dues. He learned in the wilderness. I haven't had that chance. So he asked God, you've got to give me wisdom. I don't know how to do this job. You've got to help me. Now, so far he's done pretty good. But he's, 
he knows that he's in deeper than he can get out of. And so he's, he's pray, he prays for wisdom. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. Now there's a judgment. The Lord was pleased that God had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this, and not long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for death, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you've asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you've not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my... Okay, that's the promise. Now, here's the conditional part. If you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke and he realized it had been a dream. Okay, you know about dreams. They seem very, very real when you're in the middle of them. And then you wake up. And only the disturbing ones continue to seem real. <laughs> and there, there's something a little bit disturbing about this dream. It's a happy dream. But it's disturbing as well. Why do I say that? Well, if God comes and talks to you in a dream, it's going to disturb you. It may settle you down but in one way, but it will disturb you in another. It will stir you up. It will energize you. It will affect you if it really is God speaking. So he returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and gave a feast for all of his court. And then you've got the story of the two prostitutes who come before Solomon and they come before him and he's sitting there in the judgment. They, they bring this before him. There's, there's one child between them. And the one, you, you, know, you all know the story. This is one of the most familiar story, Bible stories from the Bible, from the whole Bible. People who don't know anything about the Bible know about the story of Solomon. I mean, it's just become proverb. And those who don't are just culturally deprived. But you've got these two women and they're contesting over the custody of a child and both claiming to be the mother of this child. And the one says that the other one, she, she rolled over and smothered her child. In the, and by the way, that, that only happens under the, under the influence of drugs or alcohol. Mothers do not just roll over and smother their babies unless they are incapacitated. And so this takes place and uh, said, no, 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 she's lying. She's the one who, you know, she just, she's just mad because her baby died. And so Solomon, now forget that you've heard this story, okay? You are one of those who's watching this. You're one of those who sees this scene. What are you thinking? Okay, first of all, you're, you're wanting to get these women out of the way, aren't you? Because you've got your case, which is, your case is important. This thing is insignificant. Get this done, get this out of the way. Oh, so, and then you see all of the complications. It's, oh, no, he's going to ask for evidence and depositions and witnesses, and it's going to take hours and it's going to take days, and we're never going to get out of here. 
And so, and Solomon, you know, he's got this backlog, this docket of, you know, the, of all of these cases that are before him, you know, everything. And, so, and, that, and what does he know? This is, this is just a young guy. How is he going to deal with this? And then he comes up and says, okay, bring the baby up here. And bring a sword. Everybody, it gets quiet in the room. And Solomon says, okay, split the baby. What? Everybody is shocked, and they think, what kind of man has become our king? Because even though nobody really has sympathy for these two women, they are the lowest realm on the social order. Do you kill a baby because their, their mothers are wretched? Solomon says, split the baby. One half to one, half to the other. And immediately there's a reaction by one of those women. It doesn't take... I mean, it, the crowd has not even caught its breath when this woman immediately begins to say, no, 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 give the baby to the other woman. Give the baby to the other woman. I, I, that's not my child. Give the baby to the other woman. She can have the baby. I just don't, don't harm the baby, please. And the other woman is standing there. And, she, and the other woman still got the attitude, sounds good to me. Sounds fair. And then Solomon says, all right. Mother A, you've got your baby. Take your baby, go home. You, don't, make me, don't let me see you again. And everybody in the court goes, wow. Say, never seen anything like that. Now, this is not given as a pattern for jurisprudence, okay? This is not given as a pattern for, you know, judges to follow. This is just an indication that Solomon had been given an insight and a shrewdness for how to execute that insight pardon the unintended pun that was completely unanticipated and it, it, it basically it's used by the writer of Kings to bring forth the fact you know God had, Solomon had asked for wisdom and this is the first example that we see of it. Okay, This is the way, and we immediately begin to see, this is a man who has been given insight into people. That is particularly the key to Solomon's wisdom, is his insight into people. So Solomon ruled over all Israel, and it names his officials, and he begins to go about and he divides Israel into 12 administrative districts. They didn't exactly correspond with the 12 tribes of Israel. Tribalism is the enemy of nationalism. Tribal peoples don't form national identity. And you still got tribes out there 
less so after the reign of David. But Solomon now says, okay, what the, I'm going to go, I'm going to start with the framework that's been left by my father. And we're going to formalize some of these things. And we're going to be split up into 12 administrative districts. And he begins to operate this and, and to uh, set up a government for that. And verse 20 of chapter 4, the people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, they drank, and they were happy. Prosperity. The golden age has arrived. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms of the river, from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects all his life. And then it names his daily provisions and going on and talking about uh, the territory that Solomon ruled. Just look, uh, if you've got maps in the back of your, uh, of your Bible, you'll see one that kind of shades in the, the territory that Solomon had claimed to and that, the, the, the Solomonic territories, his kingdom there. And uh, then you've got this. During Solomon's lifetime, verse 25, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariot horses and 12,000 horses. That's an interesting thing, especially considering that Moses had warned against multiplying horses and chariots and that kind of thing. But Solomon had acquired them and, and got them. Now, here's the interesting thing. He's got all these horses and chariots. He's got this massive military thing, but he's not fighting anybody. Solomon understands that we live in a world that's governed by the aggressive use of force. And even though you may not be fighting with anybody now, sometime or another, somebody's going to need to fight you. Somebody's going to want to fight you. Somebody's going to pick a fight with you. And you're going to need to defend yourself. Solomon, I don't think it's just for show. He understands where he is. He understands what he's done. And he understands the legacy of his father. And he doesn't want to lose it. So verse 29. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of the men of the east and greater than the wisdom of Egypt. He was wiser than any other man, including Ethan the Ezraite. Wiser than Haman, Calcol, Darda, the sons of Mahol. Now we don't know any of these guys. These were the scholars of their time. These were the most brilliant men of their age. We don't even know who they are other than the fact that their names are mentioned there. But we know Solomon. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. He numbered plant... He, he was a scientist. He described plant life from the cedars of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He taught about animals and birds and reptiles and fish. And men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom sent by the kings of the world who had heard of his wisdom. Now, what is it that is attracting all these people to Solomon? I want you to think about that. I want you to understand something. They lived in a polytheistic world. All of the nations around Solomon, all of the nations around Israel, all of the other nations believed in a multiplicity of gods. Polytheism. God's many and Lord's many. Right? 
And each nation had its own gods. And each nation had its own list of gods. Now here's the deal. Every god of every nation had its own standards. Every god had his or her own code. Things you had to do to please this god. And things that please this god may annoy another god. Because the gods are in competition with each other. You see that really clearly in Greek mythology. The gods are in competition with each other and are quarreling all the time. And so you're always in a no-win situation when you're in the middle of a god quarrel. Because, you know, you please this one and, and you call this one to your help and this one comes and fights against you. And so you've got all of these things going. In other words, you've got lots of different moral standards. You follow one moral standard for this God and another moral standard for this God. And gods tended to be local. You know, you had local deities. Each community had its own God that it venerated. And so, you know, that this, this community would value certain things. This community would value certain other things. So you've got a multiplicity of moral standards. In other words, relativism, moral relativism. There is no one standard of right and wrong. There's just what's right for you and what's right for me. And what's right for you may be wrong for me. And I may think you're wrong. And I may have to fight against you. And, you know, so you've got all of these other things. And so all of this. Now, they looked at the Israelite God as being intolerant. <clears throat> I mean, first of all, they've got this just one God. How impoverished that theology is. They only, those poor Israelites only have one God. Isn't that sad? Isn't that pitiful? They only have one God. And that God has commandments. And they're just intolerant. They're just intolerant. And they think that those standards apply to everybody. They think we're even bound by those commandments. Who do they think they are? They came to Solomon because Solomon was able to show them how the fact that there is one God who is the creator of heaven and earth and everybody and everything that lives in it works. Understanding the truth that there is one Creator and one God who is over all and whom, in whom we all live and move and have our being and who has clear expectations of all of us. Solomon was able to break that down for them and show them the reasonableness of the belief in the Bible. The reasonableness of the Scriptures. The reasonableness of a God who reveals Himself. The reasonableness of a God who makes covenants. Everybody makes covenants in this world. And God has made a, our God has made a covenant with us. You can share in the rewards of that covenant. You can know God also. Keep His commandments. And He will honor you. Break His commandments. And you put yourself up not just against God, but against the way that He made the world to work. Because God embedded wisdom in the way that everything is supposed to work. God created His wisdom into the world. And His wisdom is the way things work. And when we cooperate with God, 
when we fear God and do things the way that He has them set up, life works. And we become successful. And Solomon had the track record to prove it. And people came and they listened to what he had to say and they were amazed because they didn't think, they didn't know that belief in one God could be so much fun, could be so happy, could be so joyous. They thought the belief in one God was dark and strict and mean and vicious. And and Solomon was able to show them this is the way of life. This is the tree of life. This is the path of life. And so people came and they were amazed by his wisdom. I'm not even going to get to the temple part. They're distinguished, they're all part of the same thing, but they're distinguished from one another in terms of their emphasis. When Solomon speaks of wisdom in the book of Proverbs, what he means, when it gets down, you boil it all away, it basically comes down to wisdom is righteous character. It is doing right because it's the right thing to do, but also doing right with the understanding that doing things right is the way to have the good life. So wisdom is understanding that cooperating with God's commandments brings life and health and peace. And so it's wise to do that. And so and wisdom speaks of the benefits of that. It's distinguished from prudence, which has to do with um, being able to size up a situation and make a good decision. It's distinguished somewhat from knowledge, which would be interpreted basically the way that we understand knowledge, just knowing what's going on. Uh, understanding all of these words have to do with the same, with the same concept. They're just distinguished from one another somewhat in the book of Proverbs. But there, there's not a hard and fast distinction so that there's this, but then there's this. If you basically, if you've got the one, you really have them all, but you need to understand, you need to understand the balance of everything. Is, mm-hmm. is that not similar to the scripture later that says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things? Jesus said, and Jesus was a good student of the wisdom literature of the Bible. And one of Jesus' sayings recorded in the Sermon on the Mount, he distills everything to this. He goes, goes through and says, you know, people of the world seek after, you know, they're, they're anxious about what they're going to eat, what they're going to drink, what they're going to wear. He says, your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But you seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, having to do with life and the body, shall be added to you. 
seek the kingdom of God. Seek it first. First, not in first as in a list of priorities. First, first I'll seek the kingdom of God, and then after that I'm going to seek to make a living, and then after that I'm going to seek to do this, I'm going to seek to do that, fulfill ambitions or you know, whatever. Uh-uh. To seek first the kingdom of God, it's kind of like when God said, you know, the uh, the first of you know in the the second of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, or the first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. It's kind of like that. You shall have no other gods. Literally, the Hebrew is to my face. You shall have no other gods to my face. How do you get behind God? It's not that you can have me as God number one. You shall have no other gods ahead of me. But you shall have no other gods to my face. You shall have no other gods, in other words. So when Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God, it's not seek first the kingdom of God as this is priority number one. Then you can have priority number two. You can set your own priorities after that. But just start with, you know, huh. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the controlling priority. There are no other priorities. There are priorities under that. But that is the organizing principle of your life. You seek first the kingdom of God and your righteous, His righteousness, and you're not seeking anything else. That's what you're looking for in life. That's what you're after. You set your mind and your heart on that. That's your target. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. Everything else, it's gravy. It'll come. It'll be there. The provision will be there. Yes. But is that His righteousness, His righteous character, which is wisdom? Yeah. I mean, is that... The kingdom of God, here, let me give you some... It makes a connection for me. Uh, let, let's close it out this way. Kingdom of God, here's a real deep theological definition of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is wherever God is king. Wherever God rules. Seek the kingdom of God. And His righteousness is that state of affairs where everything is right. Okay. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And I love this fact. Jesus didn't say, establish the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He said, seek it. He didn't say, complete the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He didn't say, achieve the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He said, seek it. Seeking isn't finding. Seeking you shall find. Yeah, but... Seeking and finding are two different things. Finding is God's responsibility. The seeking is ours. So let's go seek it. Kingdom of God and His righteousness. He didn't say achieve the kingdom of God and His righteousness. He said seek it. Seeking isn't finding. Seeking you shall find. Yeah, but seeking and finding are two different things. Finding is God's responsibility. The seeking is ours. So let's go seek it. You've been listening to the second of eight talks on the book of 1 Kings. We're going to pass over the details of Solomon's magnificent building program and pick up next time with chapter 8. And we're going to see how Solomon was a great planner, but there were some serious unintended consequences of some of his choices. Until then, I'm Gary Nation. Thanks for listening.